We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Away we go. <laughs> Episode 602 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Thursday, June 29th, 2023. And yes, I am here. Uh, and I am alive. And I can speak. Uh, kinda. Sorta. Uh, I lost my voice this past Friday and basically had no voice up until Wednesday. I'm still not 100%, as you almost certainly can tell. So I apologize in advance, but I do feel that I can do a show. Uh, maybe not well, <laughs> but I do feel that I can do a show. Uh, and I very much want to do the show. I have missed doing the show. Uh, I don't know what's going on here. I had COVID, uh, which got me good. But I got through COVID in about five days. Then I was fine for a week. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I started feeling lousy again, and that ended up including me losing my voice. Now, I tested negative for COVID, so I don't know if this was a lingering effect of COVID or had nothing to do with COVID. Uh, who the heck knows? But uh, yeah, here we are. <laughs> uh, it has been a trying week, to say the least, but we are back together again. Uh, well, at least for now. Hello and welcome to this Thursday installment of the Al Galdi podcast. It is nice to be back with you. Uh, we have a lot of catching up to do. You know, this episode is like an attempt at a fourth quarter comeback. Will we complete the comeback or uh, am I going to throw a crucial interception <laughs> late in the comeback attempt? I'm not sure. Uh, I can't promise anything, but uh, we will do the best that we can do. Uh, well, next segment, I do have a lot for you on the Commanders. You know, this is, yes, a slow time of year in terms of NFL news, and yet there have been a lot of Commanders news items in recent days. I'll give you my thoughts on uh, the most notable of those items, including the date for the finalizing of the sale of the team to the Josh Harris group now being said. A uh, rather declarative report on the team being done doing training camp in Richmond, Virginia, and the latest on the commanders doing hard knocks. Uh, additionally, I'm going to discuss something that I think is worth revisiting off what NFL insider Jonathan Jones of CBS Sports broke on Monday morning, that the Atlanta Falcons are promoting Kyle Smith 
from vice president of player personnel to assistant general manager. Uh, did Washington make a mistake in parting with Kyle Smith? Uh, would the commanders be better off right now if Kyle Smith still was a key part of player personnel or not so much? Uh, something to ponder. Ponder we shall next segment. Uh, also on the show, lots for you on the Wizards, Nationals, and Orioles. Uh, we have a lot of ground to cover with the Wizards as NBA free agency gets going on Friday evening. The uh, free agency negotiation period will officially begin on Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern. Are the Wizards about to make yet another move in the uh, teardown of their roster? You know, the Athletic on Wednesday afternoon reported that the Wizards have had discussions with the Minnesota Timberwolves about a potential trade involving either Monte Morris or DeLon Wright. Uh, I have a big national segment for you covering them going an oh-so-nice 4-2 and two over a six-game trip out west that featured some really good starting pitching, including a gem from Patrick Corbin in a 4-1 win at the Seattle Mariners on Wednesday. Also, lots of news on Nats prospects, and I will talk Orioles. Uh, they fell to 3-3 three and three on a nine-game homestand with an 11-7-10 inning loss to the Cincinnati Reds at Oriole Park at Camden Yards on Wednesday night, despite the O's overcoming a 7-4 eighth inning deficit, uh, and I have plenty for you on Orioles prospects. Uh, before we go any further, the Capitals, uh, they on Wednesday night had the number eight overall pick in the first round of the 2023 NHL Draft, uh, which is taking place at uh, Bridgestone Arena in Nashville, Tennessee. The Caps took Ryan Leonard, uh, a winger for the under-18 USA Hockey National Team Development Program. The Caps missed by one pick the chance to take this guy, Matvey Michkov. Uh, yes, Matvey Michkov, uh, a winger and uh, Russian phenom. Uh, Matvey Michkov ended up being taken by the Philadelphia Flyers with the number seven overall pick. A lot of people view Matchkov as the second best player in this draft, but uh, he fell due to uncertainty about how soon he'll play in the NHL. Would have been really interesting to see if the Caps would have taken Michkov. Uh, the number one player in the draft is the guy who went number one, uh, went number one to the Chicago Blackhawks, Canadian center Connor Bedard, uh, who has been called the future of hockey. Uh, the phrase in the NHL this past regular season was lose hard for Bedard. Uh, that's how well thought of Connor Bedard is as a player. But the guy who the Caps took, Ryan Leonard, he is the Caps' first top 10 pick in an NHL draft since defenseman Carl Alsner, who the Caps took with the number five overall pick all the way back in the 2007 draft. Uh, you could tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Uh, thank you for the many nice messages, uh, wishing me well in my search for the lost voice. <laughs> uh, tweet from a good friend of this podcast, the former United States ambassador to Belgium, the great Howard Gutman, uh, writes, the ambassador, feel better and play hurt. <laughs> Thank you for that, Ambassador. Yes, no softies are allowed on this podcast. We play through injury, or at least we try uh, to play through injury. Tweet from Andrew. Godspeed, Goldie, and hope you get healthy. Go into search Spotify to see if I can get my fill of that amazing intro song anyway. <laughs> Thank you for that, Andrew. Uh, yes, the intro song for this podcast, so bad, it's good. Uh, tweet from Schmitty Sports Takes. Feel better. Thank you, Schmitty. 
tweet from DC sports fan. Miss you well. Hope your time on the IL is a short one. Uh, thank you, DC sports fan. Tweet from Uncle Wheeze. Get well soon. You are like my favorite coworker. Work is not the same without you, buddy. Well, thank you for that, Uncle Wheeze. Uh, I appreciate that. Email from Matthias. Writes Matthias. Three days in a row. No Galdi. All I hear in my head is Steve Buckhans' classic call of a last-second Wizards loss. Hope you find your voice soon. Thank you for the email, Matthias. And Matthias, in his email, includes the YouTube link to an all-time great call by our guy, Steve Buckhans. Here you go. No! Not possible! Not possible! Yeah, that is a classic call. Well, also a classic is the law firm of Paulson and Nace. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. Paulson and Nace is a Washington, D.C.-based family law firm that is always ready to fight for you. Uh, Paulson and Nace handles medical malpractice, personal injury, birth injury, legal malpractice, and consumer protection cases, offering aggressive advocacy for victims in Washington, D.C. and West Virginia. Call 202-902-7611. And when you call, make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Paulson and Nace provides a passionate advocacy on behalf of injury victims designed to help them and their families move forward after the most difficult of times. And Paulson and Nace is excellent at what it does. Paulson and Nace has recovered millions of dollars for the sick and injured. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. If you feel that you've been wronged, if you think that you've been wronged but aren't sure, call Paulson and Nace and schedule a no-obligation appointment. You can call 202-902-7611. That's 202-902-7611. And when you call, make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. You can also visit paulsonandnace.com. That's paulsonandnace.com. And don't forget to tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Paulson and Nace is the best. When tragedy happens, let the family of Paulson and Nace take care of your family. All right, so the Commanders. Uh, Let's catch up on the most notable items uh, with our football team since we last spoke on Friday's show, episode 601, uh, nothing has been more significant than this. The cementing of July 20th as a date that will forever be honored in Washington, D.C. sports. We now know the date on which the sale of the team from Dan and Tanya Snyder to the Josh Harris group will become official, and that date is July 20th. Uh, We this past Friday afternoon, June 23rd, had reports that the NFL has scheduled a special owners meeting for July 20th for an expected ratification vote on the sale of the team to the Josh Harris group. And the widespread expectation is that the sale will be approved in overwhelming fashion, probably unanimous, but technically speaking, the sale needs a yes vote from at least 24 of the NFL's 32 ownerships. Uh, As you may recall, it was on June 13th, that we had multiple reports that NFL owners had been told to reserve two dates, July 20th and August 8th, uh, as dates for a possible special league meeting to vote on the sale of the commanders. Well, that uh, earlier date of July 20th is what the league is going with, and that's a good thing. 
uh, the sooner the better with the finalizing of the sale. Uh, July 20th is one week before the start of Commander's Training Camp, which will begin on July 27th. And so uh, the team should be beginning camp with new ownership in place, maybe even with Josh Harris addressing fans at camp, uh, which will take place at the team facility in Ashburn, Virginia. Now, speaking of training camp and its location, interesting nugget from a friend of this podcast, Commander's Insider Michael Phillips of Richmond.com on Monday morning. The team holding training camp in Richmond, Virginia, is over. Uh, A lot of us presume this to be the case, but uh, this now very much appears to be the case, Uh, said Richmond Economic Development Authority Board Chair John Molster, to Michael Phillips uh, of the team holding training camp in Richmond, quote, that ship has sailed. There are no plans for them to come back for the camp, end quote. Uh, And the report also notes this, quote, while the team isn't returning, the bill will continue to show up every year. Richmond City taxpayers are on the hook for about $700,000 annually until 2033. End quote. Uh, yeah, <laughs> 700 grand from the city of Richmond to the team that is the commanders until 2033. So Washington held all or part of eight training camps at what is called the Bon Secours Training Center in Richmond. Uh, each of seven consecutive training camps, 2013 through 2019, was held in Richmond. Uh, then we in 2020 had camp being held at the team headquarters in Ashburn due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Then we in 2021 had camp split between Richmond and Ashburn. And then we in 2022 had camp in Ashburn. Uh, The deal with Washington going to Richmond for camp was a money grab, uh, plain and simple. The team's initial deal with Richmond, uh, that deal for 2013 through 2019, featured Richmond covering the cost of the Bon Secours Training Center and paying the team $500,000 per year to conduct training camp in Richmond. Uh, The arrangement in 2021, reportedly, was Washington actually paying Richmond $100,000 to rent out the Bon Secours Training Center. But also via that initial deal between the team and Richmond uh, was what was called a $4 million economic incentive agreement between the team and the state of Virginia. In other words, $4 million from Virginia to the team, and that money went toward paying for upgrades at the team facility in Ashburn. So the team ultimately got paid millions of dollars uh, by the city of Richmond and is set to still be paid. But what's pretty clear is that uh, the city of Richmond did not get the benefits from the arrangement that the city wanted, namely people flocking to Richmond every August to watch training camp. Uh, The crowds beyond those for 2013 training camp, uh, which came off the team's 2012 NFC East winning season, really weren't that impressive. Uh, The team from 2013 through 2019 made the playoffs just once, and the deal just did not work out well for Richmond. Uh, Now, nobody forced Richmond to do the deal, so I don't think that we need to be playing a violin for Richmond, but the deal did not work out well for Richmond. Uh, And the truth about the Bon Secours Training Center is that it was not some great site for an NFL team's training camp. The city of Richmond is a nice city, but the Bon Secours Training Center was a makeshift NFL training camp site. I mean, understand that the Bon Secours Training Center is on the land behind the Science Museum of Virginia. That's where the team was holding training camp for years, the land behind a science museum 
Uh, the Bon Secours Training Center had drainage problems. In other words, when it rained, the fields became, uh, shall we say, rather saturated. Uh, the fields became uh, like a science experiment, okay? Uh, the facility was not ideal in terms of locker rooms and meeting rooms. The reality was that the team each summer was holding training camp in a second-rate facility by NFL standards. But the money was nice, and so the team went with the arrangement. Uh, Long term, what seems likely is the team holding training camps at a new team headquarters next to a new stadium, uh, but we are years away uh, from those things. The history of training camp sites for the team, in case you're curious, uh, Dickinson College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, 1963 through 1994, uh, then Frostburg State in Frostburg, Maryland, 1995 through 1999, then team headquarters in Ashburn for the year 2000, in which our guy Dan Snyder famously charged fans to attend (laughs) training camp practices, Uh, then back to Dickinson College in Carlisle for 2001 and 2002 training camps, then back to team headquarters in Ashburn, 2003 through 2012. And then we started uh, with the Richmond experience. Uh, Also, we have a hard knocks update. NFL insider Mike Florio of Pro Football Talk and also a good friend uh, to Washington over the years. uh, He in a piece that came out on Monday afternoon, quote, per league source, the Jets are bracing for the preseason hard knocks assignment, despite making known publicly and privately their lack of interest in serving as the focal point of this year's show, end quote. So as we have suspected, the New York Jets are the favorite to be the featured team on HBO's Hard Knocks this summer. Uh, There are four NFL teams that can be forced to be the featured team on Hard Knocks this summer due to those teams not uh, meeting certain requirements to be able to say no to being the featured team on Hard Knocks. Those four teams are the Commanders, the Jets, the Chicago Bears, and the New Orleans Saints. However, as you probably know, uh, there now is an in-season version of Hard Knocks, and the Commanders may get the call for that. Florio, quote, The Jets, Saints, and Bears have made it clear that they don't want to do it this year. The commanders were told would do it if assigned. We're also told the league prefers to wait until after the sale of the team is finalized and that the commanders could be this year's in-season option, end quote. Uh, I guess that the sale of the commanders being finalized on July 20th would offer enough time for the team to be the featured team on the summer version of Hard Knocks, uh, but that also could be a big-time rush job. So the in-season version of the show would seem to make more sense for the Commanders. Interesting that out of the four teams that can't say no to Hard Knocks, the Commanders certainly seem to be the most willing team to do the show. And my guess is that that is coming from the team president, Jason Wright, as opposed to the head coach, uh, Ron Rivera. I would think that Jason sees Hard Knocks as having the potential to boost the business of the Commanders. Well, whether the Commanders being on Hard Knocks would boost the team's business isn't clear, but here's something that is clear. Catering by Uptown is the DMV's number one catering service. Simple as that. Catering by Uptown, it is a family business that prides itself on its signature dishes and flawless presentations, and Catering by Uptown goes beyond just food. Catering by Uptown offers personalized consultation and event planning assistance that are outstanding, including venue coordination, custom catering menu selection from over a thousand delicious dish selections, and a day of event coordinator who will make sure that everything runs smoothly from putting together and executing a menu 
to picking linens, uh, to selecting an excellent florist, Catering by Uptown is committed to meeting your needs and exceeding your expectations. Whether you're having a wedding or a corporate event, an intimate gathering or a gala, Catering by Uptown is the way to go. Visit CateringByUptown.com and make sure that you mention that Al Galdi sent you. Also know this, Catering by Uptown is looking for summer help. Uh, specifically for the event waitstaff, no experience is necessary, and you get paid in-house training. A great opportunity if you're looking for summer work. Visit CateringByUptown.com. That's CateringByUptown.com, and make sure that you mention that Al Galdi sent you. All right, more now uh, regarding the commanders. So NFL insider Jonathan Jones of CBS Sports on Monday morning broke the news that the Atlanta Falcons are promoting Kyle Smith from vice president to player personnel to assistant general manager. And so I thought that now would be a good time to re-examine the Kyle Smith departure. Uh, We're now more than two years removed from Washington parting with Kyle Smith. It was in the 2021 offseason that Ron Rivera, in his second offseason as Washington head coach in a coach-centric approach, revamped the team's front office. And that revamping included the departure of Kyle Smith and the hirings of Martin Mayhew as general manager and Marty Herney as executive vice president of football slash player personnel. Uh, Washington's hirings of the two Martys uh, were announced on January 22nd, 2021. Then a week later, January 29th, 2021, the Falcons announced the hiring of Kyle Smith as vice president of player personnel, which was the exact same title that he had with Washington. Uh, Kyle Smith began his professional career as an intern with Washington in 2010. He joined the team on a full-time basis as an area scout in 2011. He was promoted to director of college personnel in June 2017 and then to vice president of player personnel in January 2020. There were three things to really like about Kyle Smith during his time with Washington. Uh, One was his age. He was young. Uh, Heck, he still is young. Uh, Kyle Smith is just 38. Another thing to like about Kyle during his time with Washington was that it was his draft boards that guided the Redskins drafts from 2017 through 2020. You could argue that that four draft stretch is the best four draft stretch for the team since the great Bobby Beathard's time uh, as Skins general manager in the 1980s. Now, that assertion is a uh, debatable assertion, okay? And the debate may well hinge on what happens with some of these guys from the 2020 NFL draft, like edge defender Chase Young. But the Skins off so many underwhelming drafts for so long had a pretty nice stretch of drafting from 2017 through 2020, and it was Kyle Smith's draft boards that guided those drafts. Uh, The 2017 NFL draft, the Skins took interior defensive lineman Jonathan Allen with the number 17 overall pick, also took center Chase Roulier in the sixth round. Uh, The 2018 NFL draft, the Skins took interior defensive lineman Deron Payne with the number 13 overall pick, took interior defensive lineman Tim Settle in the fifth round, and signed receiver Cam Sims as an undrafted free agent. The 2019 NFL draft, The Skins traded back into the first round to take edge defender Montez Sweat, took receiver Terry McLaurin in the third round, took linebacker Cole Holcomb in the fifth round, took corner Jimmy Moreland in the seventh round, and signed receiver Steven Sims 
as an undrafted free agent of the 2020 NFL Draft. The Skins took running back Antonio Gibson in the third round, took safety Cameron Curl in the seventh round, and took edge defender James Smith-Williams in the seventh round. And like I said, we'll see what happens with Chase Young. We'll also see what happens with uh, someone like offensive lineman Sadiq Charles, who the team took in the fourth round of the 2020 draft, uh, and linebacker Khalid Hudson, who the team took in the fifth round of the 2020 draft. I'm not saying that the Skins drafts from 2017 through 2020 were perfect. They were not, but they weren't bad. And while Kyle Smith wasn't making the picks, he was making the draft boards that guided those picks. Also, think about the under-the-radar, unrestricted free agent signings by Washington in the 2020 offseason. Corner Ronald Darby, uh, tight end Logan Thomas, running back J.D. McKissick, offensive tackle Cornelius Lucas, guard Wes Schweitzer. Kyle Smith was a part of all of that, although, of course, so was Rod Rivera. Uh, and then something else that made me like Kyle Smith was that he, on the night of the first round of the 2019 draft, stood up to Dan Snyder when nobody else would. Uh, this was reported on by uh, a former colleague of mine at the Team 980, Chris Russell, for SI.com in December 2020. As you almost certainly remember, okay, uh, Dan Snyder ordered the selection of quarterback Dwayne Haskins with the number 15 overall pick in the 2019 draft, even though Skins Football Operations it did not have a first-round grade on Dwayne. Well, Kyle Smith, who was 34 at the time, had the chops, had the chutzpah, to stand up to Dan Snyder on that draft night, wrote Chris Russell in December 2020, quote, Smith apparently waited and waited as the clock and picks started to inch closer to Washington's choice. And then he started to take some command of the room. Smith started to ask questions on what the choice was going to be. Sources described to us a tense silence. Smith asked the room specifically, is the organization really thinking of taking Haskins? At that point, one voice chimed in. It was the owner's voice confirming that Haskins was going to be the choice. His choice. More silence ensued in the moments around the pick, and with the pick made, Smith pushed himself up from the table and unloaded on the room a speech that was described as fiery and passionate about the pick and how much he disagreed with this election. Smith then sat down. Some of the room that night have told us since that they thought he would be fired immediately. Maybe he sat down just in time to retain his job, end quote. <laughs> so yeah, that happened. And, you know, we could do three hours on how messed up it was for Dan Snyder to order the selection of a player who the team's football operations department did not want in the first round of that 2019 draft. But put that aside, Kyle Smith stood up to Dan Snyder on that night of the first round of the 2019 NFL draft. Uh, I thought that Kyle Smith becoming Washington's general manager made a lot of sense. That was something that I talked about for a while. Uh, I was encouraged when Ron Rivera, upon officially becoming the Skins head coach on New Year's Day 2020, retained Kyle. And I really liked how Ron and Kyle, during the 2020 offseason, did these joint press conferences. Uh, you may remember those, but those joint pressers to me were really encouraging. They suggested a united front 
and organizational alignment, the likes of which the Skins had not had in years. But things between Ron Rivera and Kyle Smith went south. Uh, Kyle Smith is the son of A.J. Smith, uh, who actually worked for the Skins as an executive for a few years, but is most famous for having been the general manager of the San Diego Chargers from April 2003 to December 2012. Uh, Kyle, like A.J., can be hard to get along with. Uh, A.J. Smith famously clashed with former Skins head coach Marty Schottenheimer to where Marty, after a 2006 season in which he led the Chargers to a 14-2 and regular season record, was fired as Chargers head coach. Uh, well, Kyle is A.J.'s son, and there pretty clearly were issues between Ron and Kyle. The first public signs of this came uh, via Ron seeming very lukewarm toward Kyle during post-practice Zoom press conferences on December 2nd, 2020, and December 14th, 2020. Uh, Ron, in each of those pressers, was given the chance to sing Kyle's praises, but for the most part, did not sing the praises of Kyle, including on December 2nd, 2020, saying in response to Kyle's role with the franchise moving forward, quote, I think he's done a nice job for us. Again, as we continue to go forward, I think the big thing more so than anything else is we've got to make sure we're all on the same page, end quote. Uh, and those comments proved to be rather cryptic. Uh, yeah, Ron and Kyle were not on the same page, and Kyle soon was gone. And so that brings us to now. Would the commanders be in better shape if Kyle Smith had been promoted to GM uh, instead of the team hiring Martin Mayhew and Marty Herney? Now, I suppose that Ron Rivera could have promoted Kyle Smith to GM and hired Marty Herney because only Martin Mayhew is the commander's GM. But you get the idea. Martin and Marty were Ron's big stamps on the front office. Although what's funny is that Kyle Smith and Ron Rivera did have a connection. Ron worked for the Chargers from February 2007 until January 2011. He first was their linebackers coach. He then was the team's defensive coordinator from October 2008 until January 2011 when he became Carolina Panthers head coach. The Chargers GM during the entirety of Ron's tenure with the team was A.J. Smith. Uh, I do want to make something clear about Washington player personnel under Ron Rivera, Martin Mayhew, and Marty Herney. It has been mixed. It has not been as bad as some people like to make it out to be, but you also can't sit here and say that it has been great. It has been mixed, like a lot of things for Washington under Ron Rivera. I mean, if I had to give a grade for Washington player personnel under Ron, Martin, and Marty, I'd give a grade of like a C, you know, maybe a C plus. Uh, now, there have been some really nice hits. Uh, you look at the drafts, corner Benjamin St. Juice, a 2021 third round pick, safety Derek Forrest, a 2021 fifth round pick, uh, the trade in the 2022 draft, the commanders ultimately turning the number 11 overall pick in the 2022 draft and a 2022 sixth round pick into receiver Jahan Dotson, running back Brian Robinson Jr., quarterback Sam Howell, and tight end Cole Turner, a haul that could look quite nice as time goes on. So I'm not someone who just bashes what Ron Rivera, Martin Mayhew, and Marty Herney have done in player personnel. Have there been enough hits? No. Have some of the misses been major whiffs, like the trade for quarterback Carson Wentz and the signing 
of corner William Jackson III as an unrestricted free agent. Absolutely. But I don't think it's fair to just smash what Ron and the uh, two Martys have done in player personnel. At the same time, Washington over its three seasons with Ron as head coach and over its two seasons with the two Martys in player personnel has not had a single winning regular season and has faded badly in each of the last two regular seasons. It's hard to know how much praise Kyle Smith deserves for his time with the Falcons. Like, what specific good moves has he advocated for or played a key role in? We don't know. But it's hard to believe that he's doing a terrible job if he's getting promoted. Uh, Seven months from now will be late January 2024, and the NFL's 2023 regular season will be over. We, at that time, could be looking at an entirely different football operation structure for the commanders. Heck, we maybe even sooner than seven months from now could be looking at an entirely different football operation structure for the commanders. I just wonder if we're going to look back at the parting with Kyle Smith as a critical mistake. Uh, Maybe the first big mistake made by Ron Rivera during his time as Washington head coach. Uh, That point is not clear, but I do think that it's something to keep in mind. Well, what most definitely is a mistake is not shopping your home and auto insurance. Uh, The home and auto insurance markets are messes right now. We are routinely seeing 20% increases in home and auto insurance, even when the account is clean, meaning no accidents or violations on the auto insurance and no claims on the property insurance. Uh, You right now have every reason to shop your home and auto insurance, and that's why you should get with BMC insurance. Check out BMC Insurance. Go to insurancebmc.com. You'll be put in touch with the owner and president, Matt Brooks, a loyal listener of this podcast. And make sure that you mention that Al Galdi sent you. BMC Insurance, it offers home insurance, auto insurance, and also small business insurance in Maryland, Virginia, Washington, D.C., and North Carolina. BMC Insurance is an independent insurance agency, meaning that it has many, as in dozens, of insurance carriers it works with to make sure that clients are always paying competitive rates. What's especially great about BMC Insurance is that it has relationships with its clients. BMC Insurance is a trusted advisor for your insurance needs. Uh, BMC Insurance continues to work with clients after sales. It has team members who actually shop clients insurance every year when they renew. And BMC Insurance does this proactively so that you don't have to. BMC Insurance will save you time and money. And perhaps most telling, BMC Insurance's client retention rates historically are much higher than industry averages. When people get BMC Insurance, they stay with BMC Insurance. Don't get gouged on your home and auto insurance. Check out BMC Insurance. Go to insurancebmc.com. Talk to my guy, Matt Brooks, and make sure that you mention that Al Galdi sent you. And BMC Insurance does offer small business insurance. So if you're looking for general liability, workers' comp, or commercial auto insurance, BMC Insurance can help. Visit insurancebmc.com. That's insurancebmc.com. And make sure that you mention that Al Galdi sent you.
All right, let's talk some Wizards. Uh, the free agency negotiation period will officially begin on Friday, June 30th at 6 p.m. Eastern. Uh, this period also is known as the NBA free agency moratorium, and uh, it'll last until July 6th at 12.01 p.m. Eastern, which is when most free agent signings can become official. Uh, until then, most free agent signings cannot become official. Uh, The Wizards are set to have Kyle Kuzma as an unrestricted free agent. He may well be as good as gone. The hope would be uh, that the Wizards can do a sign and trade, but uh, that does not appear to be super likely. What's also potentially brewing is a trade or trades involving the Wizards' many guards. Uh, The Wizards are set to have three guards in Tyus Jones, Monte Morris, and DeLon Wright entering contract seasons. Uh, This as our Wizards quite clearly are tanking this coming season. Might one or more of these guys get traded in the coming days or weeks? Uh, Yahoo Sports senior NBA reporter Jake Fisher, he in a piece that came out on Tuesday morning, wrote, quote, the Wizards are seeking draft compensation for both veteran guards Monte Morris and DeLon Wright, sources said. With Washington currently holding 16 players on guaranteed contracts, the Wizards also are expected to come to a buyout agreement with Danilo Gallinari, end quote. Uh, The last episode of this podcast, Friday's show, episode 601, came out just a few hours after the Wizards in the early morning hours of this past Friday officially announced the Chris Dapps-Porzingis trade, uh, a three-team trade with the Boston Celtics and Memphis Grizzlies in which the Wizards acquired point guard Tyus Jones, forward Danilo Gallinari, forward slash center Mike Muscala, and the rights to Julian Phillips, who was taken with the number 35 overall pick in the 2023 NBA draft. Uh, The Wizards in the trade sent center Chris Dapps-Porzingis to the Celtics, who in the trade sent Marcus Smart to the Grizzlies. Also, the Wizards announced having subsequently agreed in principle to trade Phillips' draft rights to the Chicago Bulls. And then on Wednesday night, the Wizards officially announced having acquired the Bulls' 2026 and 2027 second-round draft picks in exchange for the draft rights to Julian Phillips. So all of this is very confusing, clearly. Uh, The Wizards this past weekend did officially announce the Bradley Beal trade. The Wizards on Saturday afternoon officially announced having traded Beal to the Phoenix Suns. The Wizards officially sent Beal, Jordan Goodwin, and Isaiah Todd uh, to the Suns for a number of assets, six second-round draft picks, four first-round pick swaps, point guard Chris Paul, and guard Landry Shamit. What still has not been officially announced is the Chris Paul trade. Uh, We last Thursday afternoon had the reports that the Wizards were trading Paul to the Golden State Warriors for Jordan Poole, a 2030 protected first round pick, a 2027 second round pick, and Ryan Rollins. But the trade still is not official, although the trade should become official uh, any moment now. But Back to Bradley Beal. So the Wizards on Saturday afternoon in officially announcing the Beal trade uh, were very classy in saying goodbye to Beal. Uh, The press release that the Wizards put out included this from the owner of our Wizards, Monumental Sports and Entertainment founder and CEO Ted Leonsis, quote, Bradley leaves a legacy and impact that will continue to be felt by those he helped during the 11 seasons we watched him develop into a cornerstone of our on-court and off-court efforts. We appreciate and respect the place he holds in our franchise's history, and we're proud that he established himself as a star player, community leader, and family man in Washington, D.C., and quote. Also, the Wizards on Saturday afternoon put out multiple tweets thanking and praising Bradley Beal. All of this 
was very nice. I mean, look, whatever you want to say about the Wizards, don't ever say that they were not nice to Bradley Beal, okay? Uh, They, of course, were too nice to Bradley Beal, including in last July giving him the five-year $251 million Supermax contract with the no-trade clause. But the Wizards certainly treated Bradley Beal with plenty of respect. And Beal on Monday morning did come out with his goodbye to the Wizards and Wizards fans. The goodbye was via the Players' Tribune. Uh, There had been some ripping of Beal for not having already put out his goodbye. For example, Chris Tapps Porzingis last Thursday afternoon before him being traded to the Celtics was even official, put out a tweet in which he said a nice goodbye to the Wizards and their fans. But I figured that there was some reason that Beal's goodbye took a while. I mean, him purposely not saying goodbye (laughs) would have been really low class. And Beal, whatever you want to say about him, isn't low class. And now we would seem to know why the goodbye took some time. He wrote an extensive piece for the Players' Tribune. So good to have that. Uh, Also with the Wizards over these last few days was the introductory press conference for Bilal Koulibaly. This happened this past Saturday morning. So the Wizards in the 2023 NBA draft last Thursday night traded the draft rights to the number eight overall pick and traded two second round picks to the Indiana Pacers for the draft rights for the number seven overall pick with which the Pacers for the Wizards took Bilal Koulibaly. Both Koulibaly and the Wizards' new general manager, Will Dawkins, spoke at the press conference. I thought that both guys came off very well. Uh, So Koulibaly is considered good defensively and raw, but with upside offensively. Listings of his physical measurements vary, but he's believed to be 6'7 or 6'8 and with a ridiculous wingspan of 7'2", as has been listed in some spots. Uh, This was Dawkins on Saturday morning on Koulibaly's defensive versatility and potential. Yeah, it's the thing that pops out right away when you see the 7'2 length um, for a guard. He's 99th percentile for his position in height. He's 99th percentile in his position for length. And if you take all the measurements and see him run and jump, he's probably 99th percentile on that too. But with that comes an effort. And he's a guy that takes contact, dishes out on offense, but defensively he can guard on the ball, guard off the ball. We see him as a guy that can switch and be versatile. And he embraces that. So for us... Having a defensive mindset first as a young player, is, it's going to be hard to get on the court, as we know for young guys, but he's got the passion and motivation to be able to get it first on the floor defensively. Yeah, good stuff from Will Dawkins right there. Uh, Bilal Koulibaly is an upside pick. He's exactly the kind of player a rebuilding team like the Wizards should take, a guy with big-time upside. Uh, yeah, he could be a bust, okay, but he has the talent to be a boom, a major hit, and That's what the Wizards need. They don't need any more high-floor, low-ceiling first-round picks. The Wizards need a big-time hit of a first-round pick, and hopefully that's what Koulibaly proves to be. Uh, And Will Dawkins on Saturday morning essentially spoke to all of this. Take a listen. We won't take short-sighted approaches in the draft. We'll take the guy who we think will be the best long-term player, the best long-term fit. And with him... It's going to take a little while, and we know that, and we have the confidence in the coaching staff, and we have the support from ownership to be able to take that approach and make sure that we're not settling and we can go take a risk or go take further time to do something. And with him, it's, it's, we don't feel like it's a risk. We feel like it's a player that can come in and play and just continue to chip away, continue to get better, but his future is much brighter than his current. Yeah, I loved what Will Dawkins had to say right there, acknowledging that Bilal Koulibaly may take some time to develop, but also that the upside is extreme. 
Uh, also, with Koulibaly on Saturday morning, we learned that he will <laughs> be wearing the number zero. Yes, zero. Uh, he will become the first Wizards player to have zero as his jersey since Agent Zero, Gilbert Arenas. Uh, here was Koulibaly on Saturday morning on wearing the number zero. I'm very proud to wear that number. I know Agent Zero was uh, uh, the last one wearing that. And uh, yeah, all the respect to him. Um, just, you know, I had a great year last year with that number. And uh, I hope that continues. So, yeah. Well, for the record, I have zero problem with Bilal Koulibaly wearing the number zero. See what I did there? <laughs> uh, I enjoyed the good times that the Wizards had with Gilbert Arenas as much as any Wizards fan. How could you not? But there are two main reasons not to retire the number zero for Gilbert. First of all, things between the Wizards and Gilbert ended ugly, really ugly. Now, things do appear to be better. Uh, the team this past November 18th reunited the big three of Gilbert Arenas, Karan Butler, and Antoine Jameson. Uh, Gilbert, Karan, and Antoine did a pregame press conference on that evening. Uh, they were honored at halftime, during which they were presented with customized classic Wizards jerseys. I'm glad that the team and Gilbert now are on better terms. I don't consider Gilbert to be a bad guy, but, you know, the last few years for him with the team were bad, really bad. I mean, you had injury, yet Gilbert in his recovery from the injury not doing what he should have been doing. And then, of course, you had the controversy. Uh, January 2010, Gilbert was suspended indefinitely by then NBA Commissioner David Stern for the uh, guns in the locker room fiasco with Javaris Crittenton, and the suspension ended up lasting for the rest of that season. And then the Wizards in December 2010 traded Gilbert to the Orlando Magic. Uh, but there's also this. The Wizards with Gilbert Arenas won just one playoff series and never won more than 45 games in a regular season. Peak Gilbert Arenas with the Wizards was a lot of fun. He was a big star. He was clutch. You know, he was the hibachi, okay? He was Agent Zero, but there wasn't like great team accomplishment during Gilbert's time with the Wizards. And as I just outlined, that time ended in ugly fashion. You know, there has been this like romanticizing of Gilbert Arenas' time with the Wizards that has become a bit much the bar with the Wizards is low, no doubt, but the low bar shouldn't distort how we view players. Uh, so yeah, like you can salute Gilbert Arenas for his service to the Wizards, but also not retire his number. You know, I don't think that you ever have had to do that. Uh, two other Wizards-related items that I wanted to hit on with you. Uh, so the Washington Post this past Friday reported that representatives from Monumental Sports and Entertainment have had preliminary and exploratory talks regarding a possible arena site near Amazon's new HQ2 development uh, in the National Landing Area of Arlington, Virginia. Uh, this as Ted Leonsis and other Monumental executives have also been meeting with Washington City officials regarding the need to improve Capital One Arena and uh, also who would pay for those improvements. Uh, now, we'll see what comes of all of this. This story on the surface, to me, reeked of a leak from uh, Team Ted to the Washington Post in order to put a scare into D.C. for the purpose of getting D.C. to pay for a big chunk of improvements to Capital One Arena. I have a hard time believing that Ted actually truly would want to move uh, Wizards Capitals and Mystics home games from Capital One Arena, uh, which is a good arena in an excellent location. And then this Qatar thing. <laughs> uh, this Qatar thing is something. So we, last Thursday afternoon, had multiple reports that the government of Qatar 
uh, via the Qatar Investment Authority, which is Qatar's sovereign wealth fund, is buying about 5% of the Wizards' parent company, Monumental Sports and Entertainment. And I want to clarify something with this. Some of the reporting on this made it sound like Qatar is paying $4.05 billion for the approximate 5% stake in Monumental Sports and Entertainment. The Associated Press in a piece that came out last Friday morning reported, quote, Qatar's sovereign wealth fund is buying a roughly 5% stake in the parent company of the NBA's Washington Wizards, NHL's Washington Capitals, and WNBA's Washington Mystics as part of a $4.05 billion deal, a person with knowledge of the sale said, end quote. Now, just going off that, I don't know, maybe I'm misreading things, but it sounds like Qatar is paying $4.05 billion for the approximate 5% stake in monumental sports and entertainment. But of course, that would mean that the entirety of monumental sports and entertainment is worth about $81 billion, which uh, seems a bit high. So what appears to be the case is that what Qatar is paying for the approximate 5% stake in Monumental Sports and Entertainment values Monumental Sports and Entertainment at $4.05 billion. So Qatar would be paying about $202.5 million. Uh, Just wanted to make that clear because this has been uh, a bit confusing. The NBA this past November began to allow sovereign wealth funds and other institutional investors to buy non-controlling stakes in NBA teams. A foreign fund is allowed to buy up to 20% of an NBA team. This infusion of money into monumental sports and entertainment is hard to ignore given that Ted Leonsis reportedly wants to buy the Nationals. And so you think about what may be happening here and uh, old Teddy uh, may well be making moves in order to better situate himself to buy the Nats. Uh, just something to think about. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Well, the Nationals play in the National League East, but if you didn't know better, you'd think that the Nats play in the National League West. Uh, The Nats on Wednesday played their 40th road game of this MLB regular season. A whopping 25 of the 40 road games have been played at teams in the National League West or American League West, but uh, the Nats in their latest trip out West ended up doing just fine. Four and two. Uh, The Nats 
this past weekend won two or three games at the San Diego Padres this past Friday night, a 13-3 loss at the Padres, but then this past Saturday night, a 2-0 win at the Padres, and then this past Sunday, an 8-3 win at the Padres, and now the Nats have won two or three games at the Seattle Mariners. Uh, Monday night, an 8-4 loss at the Mariners, but Tuesday night, a 7-4, 11-inning win at the Mariners, and on Wednesday, a 4-1 win at the Mariners for manager Davey Martinez and the boys. I'm proud of the boys. Yeah, now Davey Martinez on Wednesday did get ejected. Uh, more on that in a bit, but the Nats improved to 32 and 48. And the story of this win on Wednesday was the Nats starting pitcher, Patrick Corbin. Uh, we know the deal with Corbin. His last three seasons have been really bad. And he on Wednesday was coming off an especially bad start. Uh, the 13 3 loss at the Padres this past Friday night. Corbin in that game, seven runs in five innings. He over the first four innings allowed just one run, but he then unraveled in what ended up being a six run Padres fifth. Well, Corbin in this 4-1 win at the Mariners on Wednesday was excellent. Uh, He tossed seven scoreless innings with nine strikeouts versus no walks. He gave up just five hits, all of which were singles, and he threw a lot of strikes. He over 102 pitches threw 68 strikes versus just 34 balls. Uh, Corbin on Wednesday pitched like an ace. He pitched like a guy uh, in the fifth season of a six-year, $140 million contract, which of course is the contract to which the Nats signed him as a free agent in December 2018. Uh, something that really stood out with Corbin from a pitch-throwing standpoint on Wednesday was his bread-and-butter pitch, the slider, being on point. Uh, Corbin on Wednesday for StatCast threw a slider on 38% of his pitches, so the most of any pitch in this outing, and had an average slider velocity that was 3.1 miles per hour higher than his average slider velocity for this regular season. Uh, It was really good to see Corbin do as well as he did. Uh, Now, Patrick Corbin in this regular season, 17 starts, ERA of 493. So that obviously isn't good. But, you know, that is a lot better than his 631 ERA for the 2022 regular season and even his 582 ERA for the 2021 regular season. So by normal pitcher standards, Patrick Corbin still isn't good. But if you are using the uh, Corbin curve, Uh, He actually is demonstrating significant improvement this season, as pathetic as that may sound. I mean, again, his ERA is a shade under five. Uh, But what Corbin did on Wednesday did continue a nice stretch of starting pitching for the Nats uh, since the uh, clunker by Corbin last Friday night. Uh, This past Saturday night, the 2-0 win at the Padres. Josiah Gray, five and a third scoreless innings with six strikeouts. He did issue four walks, but he gave up just four hits, all of which were singles. Uh, This past Sunday, the 8-3 win at the Padres. Mackenzie Gore, one run in five innings with nine strikeouts, including striking out the ex-nat Juan Soto swinging with runners at the corners and two outs in what ended up only being a one-run Padres fifth. Uh, Gore gave up just five hits, all of which were singles. He issued two walks. Uh, He threw 104 pitches, 58 strikes versus 46 balls, but he struck out each of the first six batters he faced, becoming the first pitcher in Expos slash Nats history to strike out each of the first six batters he faced 
in a regular season game. Uh, now, Trevor Williams did struggle on Monday night, the 8-4 loss at the Mariners. He lasted for just four innings. He allowed three runs. He gave up eight hits, two leadoff homers, and six singles. Although even Williams in this game did some good things. Four strikeouts versus one walk, and he threw a good number of strikes. 83 pitches, 55 strikes versus 28 balls. Uh, then the 7-4, 11-inning win at the Mariners on Tuesday night. Jake Irvin was at least decent for a third consecutive start since having his turn in the rotation skipped. Uh, Irvin on Tuesday night, three runs in five and two-thirds innings. He gave up five hits, a homer, and four singles. He issued two walks. He recorded four strikeouts, and he threw a lot of strikes. 93 pitches, 61 strikes versus 32 balls. And now uh, we have what Patrick Corbin did on Wednesday. So the Nats starting pitching has been good lately. Uh, the Nats bullpen in this 4-1 win at the Mariners on Wednesday. Two Nats combined to allow one run in two innings. We had the Major League regular season debut of Amos Willingham. Uh, Willingham allowed a run in the bottom of the eighth. He, to the first batter he faced, gave up a leadoff homer. Uh, and this was by the Mariners' number nine batter, Jose Caballero, to left field to cut the Nats' lead to 4-1, despite Caballero having been down in the count at 1.02, although what should have been called strike three instead was called ball two. Uh, the Nats, this past Monday evening, selected the contract of Amos Willingham from AAA Rochester and optioned reliever Paolo Espino back to Rochester. The Nats, on Saturday afternoon, had recalled Paolo uh, from Rochester as the corresponding roster moved to designating pitcher Chad Cool for assignment, but Paolo struggled in his first appearance for the Nats at the major league level in this regular season. Uh, Paolo in the 8-3 win at the Padres on Sunday allowed a run in two-thirds of an inning uh, as he was brought in to pitch the bottom of the ninth with the Nats leading 8-2, but did not finish the game, although he did record two strikeouts. But Davey Martinez ended up having to use his uh, top reliever, Hunter Harvey, to get the final out of that game, uh, although Harvey did throw just uh, three pitches in retiring the only battery faced. Uh, now, speaking of Hunter Harvey, he did pitch on Wednesday. He tossed a perfect pot of the ninth uh, with two swinging strikeouts. It has been a wild last few days for the Nats bullpen. Uh, we've had the aforementioned roster moves. We've also had a high variance of performance. I mean, just look at this series at the Mariners. Monday night, the 8-4 loss. You had that really rough relief appearance by Corey Abbott, who officially allowed five runs in three and a third innings. He gave up a double and two singles, issued four walks, although he did record five strikeouts. But then on Tuesday night, that 7-4-11 inning win, four Nats relievers combined to allow one run in five and a third innings. Kyle Finnegan officially tossed two perfect innings as he faced five batters and got six outs. And Jordan Weems, he tossed two scoreless innings with three strikeouts. He tossed a scoreless bottom of the 10th and a perfect bottom of the 11th. Uh, the Nats in this 4-1 win at the Mariners on Wednesday, four runs, eight hits, four walks, three for 11 with runners in scoring position. Uh, the eight hits were comprised of three doubles and five singles. The Nats scored three of the four runs in the first inning. Boy, have the Nats scored a lot of first inning runs this season. The Nats in this regular season have totaled 333 runs. 51 of those runs, 15.32%, have been first inning runs. Uh, the Nats' two big hits and that three-run first came from Jamer Candelario and Capert Ruiz. Uh, Candelario on Wednesday as an at starting third baseman and number three batter, one for three with an RBI double and a walk. Uh, he in that three-run first had a full count RBI double to the right center field gap for a one nothing Nats lead despite having been down in the count at 1.12. And Candelario in the top of the third, a leadoff walk. And then 
uh, steal a second base. Uh, Jamer Candelario having a really nice season. He's number two among qualified Nats in OPS for this regular season at 809. And then Capert Ruiz, uh, he had an eventful day on Wednesday. Capert as an ad starting DH and number four batter, two for three with a two-run single, another single, and a walk. He and that Nats three-run first had a two-run single to right center field for a three-nothing Nats lead. Uh, he in the top of the third drew a walk and then in the Nats, one run six, Kate Baird had a leadoff single to center field despite having been down in the count at 1.12, but he then was called out at home in his attempt to score from first on a Dominic Smith first pitch double to right field as the home plate umpire, Derek Thomas, ruled that Kate Baird deviated too far from the base path in attempting to score. Uh, and David Martinez came out to argue and got ejected. This was odd because just watching the play, Capert seemed to do what he had to do to try to score. Uh, what he did in trying to slide around the tag of the Mariners catcher, Tom Murphy, certainly didn't seem egregious. Uh, the applicable rule is that, quote, any runner is out when he runs more than three feet away from a direct line between bases to avoid being tagged unless his action is to avoid interference with a fielder fielding a batted ball. End quote. Now, what's tricky is that that three-foot aspect of this uh, has to do not with three feet from the foul line, but three feet from the lane that the runner has established. Uh, this was actually explained by the crew chief, Mark Carlson, to a pool reporter after the game. The whole thing is very confusing, like a lot of rules and rule scenarios in baseball. Anyway, Kevin Ruiz uh, ended up having a nice series at the Mariners. He, over the three games, went a combined 5-for-12 with a homer, four singles, and a walk. Uh, also on Wednesday, Ildemaro Vargas. Uh, he was an at-starting shortstop at number six batter as C.J. Abrams got the day off. Uh, in addition to the Nats' usual D.H., Joey Manessis getting the day off. Uh, but Vargas in this game, one for three, uh, with an RBI double and a walk. He and the Nats, one run six, had a one out opposite field RBI double to left field for a 4 nothing Nats lead. Uh, Vargas, to me, is an under-the-radar trade chip for the Nats. And in fact, MLB insider John Morosi of MLB Network, he this past Monday morning tweeted, quote, the Nats are popular sellers because of bullpen arms like Kyle Finnegan, but one rival team official told me Ildemaro Vargas could add value for a postseason team, end quote. I mean, the top trade chip on the Nats certainly would seem to be Jamer Candelario. He's playing for the Nats on a one-year, $5 million free agent contract. This is his age 29 season, so he's not really a potential building block, uh, but he has been good. Candelario entering Wednesday was number one among all National League third basemen in wins above replacement war per fan graphs for this regular season at 2.3. Uh, also with the Nats, a busy last few days regarding their farm system, including news on Wednesday morning when we learned that the Nats have promoted starting pitcher Jackson Rutledge from AA Harrisburg to AAA Rochester. Uh, the rise of Jackson Rutledge this season has been so good to see. So this is his age 24 season. Uh, he's a big dude. Uh, the Nats list Rutledge as being 6'8 and 251 pounds. Uh, he is the uh, classic power pitcher that Nats president of baseball operations and general manager Mike Rizzo likes so much. The Nats took Rutledge out of San Jacinto College, a, a public community college in Texas, with the number 17 overall pick in the 2019 MLB draft. He, in the 2021 and 2022 season, struggled with injury and ineffectiveness, but he, this season, off making the jump 
from low A Fredericksburg in the 2022 season to double A Harrisburg for the 2023 season has been good. Uh, Rutledge for Harrisburg this season, 12 starts, 68 and a third innings, an ERA of 316, a whip of 1.098, and a strikeouts per nine innings of 8.2. Additionally, rosters for this year's All-Star Futures game were announced on Monday evening. Uh, The Futures game is the uh, minor league All-Star game. Uh, This year's Futures game will take place at Seattle's T-Mobile Park on Saturday night, July 8th at 7. And two Nats prospects are on the National League roster for this year's Futures game. Uh, Those prospects are outfielder James Wood and third baseman slash shortstop Brady House. Uh, And those guys are the Nats' top two prospects for MLB Pipeline. Uh, which on Sunday night came out with the outlet's latest list of the top 100 prospects in baseball. Uh, Five of them are Nats prospects. Outfielder James Wood is the number six prospect in baseball. Third baseman slash shortstop Brady House is number 75. Uh, Starting pitcher Cade Cavalli, uh, who is out for the season due to Tommy John surgery, is number 82. Uh, Outfielder Elijah Green is number 86. Uh, He's having a tough season for low A Fredericksburg, although this is just his age 19 season. And outfielder Robert Hassel III is number 99. Uh, He's struggling for Double A Harrisburg this season. Uh, Hassel and Green were two of the four biggest fallers in this installment of MLB Pipeline's top 100 prospects uh, as compared to the previous installment. But on the way, certainly, is someone uh, who should be an instant top 20 prospect, if not top 10 prospect, if not top five prospect, as the Nats have the number two overall pick in the 2023 MLB draft, uh, which will begin on Sunday night, July 9th. Uh, The top three prospects in some order are LSU starting pitcher Paul Skeens, LSU outfielder Dylan Cruz, and Florida outfielder Wyatt Langford. Any one of those guys would be a likely number one overall pick in many other years. We saw all three of these guys on display uh, in the now-concluded best-of-three College World Series, which LSU won two games to one. Uh, You have Paul Skeens, who is being called the best pitching prospect for an MLB draft since it had Steven Strasburg in 2009. What a season Paul Skeens had. 19 starts, a total of 122 and two-thirds innings, an ERA of 169, a whip of 0.75, and a strikeouts per nine innings of 15.33. Dylan Cruz, he played in all 71 of LSU's games in the 2023 season. He finished with a batting average of 426, an on-base percentage of 567, and a slugging percentage of 713. I mean, those are video game numbers. Cruz this past Sunday won the 2023 Golden Spikes Award, which honors the top amateur baseball player in the country. He's the second LSU player to win a Golden Spikes. The first was former Orioles starter and uh, current Orioles broadcaster for Madison, Ben McDonald in 1989. And Wyatt Langford, uh, he played in 64 of Florida's games in the 2023 season, batting average of 373 and on base percentage of 498 and a slugging percentage of 784. Again, video game numbers. Uh, The Pittsburgh Pirates have the number one overall pick in the 2023 draft. Nobody's certain about what they're going to do, but whatever they do, the Nats at two will have their pick 
of multiple stud prospects. Uh, no game for the Nats on Thursday. Next up for them, a three-game series at the Philadelphia Phillies. Game one, Friday evening at 6.05. Game two, Saturday afternoon at 4.05. And game three, Sunday afternoon at 1.35. Well, the Orioles are in the midst of a nine-game homestand. Uh, they're now 3-3 three and three on that homestand. The O's this past weekend won two or three games against the Seattle Mariners at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Friday night, a 13-1 loss to the Mariners in a game that started an hour and 40 minutes late due to rain. Uh, this past Saturday, a 6-4-10 inning win over the Mariners. And this past Sunday afternoon, a 3-2 win over the Mariners. But the O's then ended up losing two or three games to the Cincinnati Reds at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Monday night, a 10-3 win over the Reds in a game plagued by multiple rain delays. Tuesday night, a 3-1 loss to the Reds in a game plagued by a rain delay of an hour and 43 minutes. And then Wednesday night, a wild 11-7, 10-inning loss to the Reds despite the O's overcoming a 7-4, 8-inning deficit. Said a lot of long game days at Camden Yards in recent days. Uh, the O's now are 48 and 31. Uh, that is the third best record in the American League. Uh, the O's, for the most part, are hitting right now. Now, not every Oriole is hitting. Uh, catcher Adley Rutschman is not hitting for much power, for example, and shortstop Jorge Mateo continues to struggle, but the O's are having a good number of games in which the team hits well. Wednesday night's game was one of those games. The O's totaled seven runs, 10 hits, and five walks, went four for 13 with runners in scoring position. By the way, the O's over these three games against the Reds worked 20 walks. I mean, that's outstanding. And the O's on Wednesday night overcame that 7-4 eighth inning deficit. Uh, Adam Frazier, he is the Orioles starting second baseman and number nine batter, went one for two with two walks. And the one was a big game-tying home run. Uh, Frazier hit an Orioles three-run eighth, a game-tying two-out, two-run homer to right field to tie the game at seven. Uh, also, Gunnar Henderson, uh, he on Wednesday night as the Orioles starting shortstop had number six batter one for four, but his one, a three-run triple. He also drew a walk. He did strike out three times, but Henderson and an Orioles four-run first had a one-out, bases-loaded, three-run opposite field triple to the left center field gap for a 4-3 Orioles lead despite having been down in the count at one point, 0-2. And then there is Jordan Westberg. Uh, what a great story this has been these last few days. So the O's on Monday morning selected the contract of infielder Jordan Westberg from AAA Norfolk. He is up to being the number 33 prospect in baseball per MLB pipeline. This is his age 24 season. The O's took Westberg out of Mississippi State with the number 30 overall pick in the 2020 MLB draft. Uh, Westberg for AAA Norfolk this season, just terrific. 301 plate appearances, an OPS of 939, and he has made an instant impact for the O's. So Westberg in this 11-7-10 inning loss to the Reds on Wednesday night as the Orioles starting third baseman and number eight batter, two for five with an RBI double 
and a single. Uh, Westberg in that Orioles three-run aid, a two-out RBI double to left field to cut the Orioles' deficit to 7-5. Uh, Westberg in the 3-1 loss to the Reds on Tuesday night as the Orioles starting second baseman and number seven batter, two for three with two singles and a walk. And Westberg in the 10-3 win over the Reds on Monday night in his Major League regular season debut was the uh, Orioles starting second baseman at number seven batter and went one for four with a single, a walk, and an RBI fielder's choice grounder, although he did get caught stealing on an attempted steal of second base, but so far so good uh, for Jordan Westberg at the major league level. Uh, also, good to have Cedric Mullins back. Uh, Mullins is back. The O's on Saturday afternoon reinstated center fielder Cedric Mullins from the 10-day injured list, which he had been on since May 30th due to a right groin strain, although Mullins really hasn't done much since returning. And uh, actually, he on Wednesday night committed a fielding error uh, during the Reds' four-run 10th. Uh, the Orioles' bullpen has been very up and down lately. Uh, reliever Keegan Aiken on Wednesday night uh, was not good. Uh, he, in the top of the 10th, allowed four runs, two earned, and got just two outs. He gave up an RBI triple, a two-run homer, a one-out double uh, that led to that fielding error by Cedric Mullins, a one-out run-scoring wild pitch, and a two-out 10-pitch walk. Uh, for the game, six Orioles relievers combined to allow five runs, three earned, in five into third innings. But the Orioles' loss on Wednesday night starts uh, with the team's starting pitcher. Uh, Kyle Gibson was bad for a second consecutive start. Uh, He allowed six runs in four and two-thirds innings. He gave up nine hits, a double, and eight singles. So there was some bad luck involved in that he gave up all of those singles. Uh, But he also issued a hit-by-pitch. He did have five strikeouts versus one walk. He threw 95 pitches, 58 strikes versus 37 balls. Here was O's manager Brandon Hyde during his postgame press conference on Wednesday night on Kyle Gibson. I think the, you know, the lefties kind of gave him a problem there. I think he was trying to get his cutter in, and there was a lot of base hits to the right side um, in those first couple innings. And, and then I thought he was really good after that. Third and fourth inning was outstanding. Pitched into the fifth after giving up six earned runs. I mean, he knew, he knew kind of where we were bullpen-wise and, and uh, went as deep as he could for us. I mentioned Kyle Gibson on Wednesday night having a second consecutive bad start. Uh, Gibson in the Orioles' 13-1 loss uh, to the Mariners this past Friday night lasted for just three innings. He allowed five runs. Uh, He gave up seven hits, a homer, and six singles. He issued three walks. He recorded four strikeouts. He over 86 pitches through just 46 strikes versus 40 balls. But I tell you, aside from these last two starts by Kyle Gibson, the Orioles starting pitching Uh, has been good lately. Uh, Look at the other two games in this series against the Reds. Uh, The 3-1 loss on Tuesday night, Tyler Wells was good. Two runs in six innings with seven strikeouts versus one walk. He gave up just four hits, a homer, a double, and two singles. He threw a lot of strikes, 99 pitches, 64 strikes versus 35 balls. Uh, The 10-3 win on Monday night. Uh, Now, Cole Urban's start was cut short due to the rain, but he was effective. Uh, He allowed one run in three innings with three strikeouts, then didn't pitch again due to a rain delay that lasted for an hour and 44 minutes, but he threw a lot of strikes, 45 pitches, 31 strikes versus just 14 balls. And then the two non-Kyle Gibson games in the series against the Mariners. Uh, The 3-2 win on Sunday afternoon. Kyle Bradish was good, two 
two runs in seven innings with seven strikeouts. He gave up just two hits, a two-run homer, and a double. He issued two walks. So he over 103 pitches through 69 strikes versus just 34 balls. Uh, Saturday, the 6-4, 10-inning win over the Mariners. Uh, Dean Kramer was at least solid for a ninth time in 10 starts. He allowed three runs in seven innings. He had five strikeouts versus one walk. He did give up three home runs, but all of them were solo homers, and he only gave up two other hits, uh, which were singles, and he threw a lot of strikes. Uh, 87 pitches, 60 strikes versus just 27 balls. Uh, Also with the O's in recent days, the latest on their prospects. Uh, Two Orioles prospects were named to the American League roster for this year's All-Star Futures game, shortstop Jackson Holiday and outfielder Heston Kerstad. Uh, and those guys placed prominently in the latest installment of MLB Pipeline's Top 100 Prospects. Uh, we last segment talked about five Nationals prospects being part of MLB Pipeline's latest Top 100 Prospects list, which came out on Sunday night. Well, seven of the prospects are Orioles prospects, including the number one prospect in baseball, shortstop Jackson Holiday. He is number one, third time in recent years that the O's have had the number one prospect in baseball. Uh, first was catcher Adley Rutschman. Then we had infielder Gunnar Henderson as the number one prospect in baseball. Now we have Jackson Holiday as the number one prospect in baseball. Uh, outfielder Colton Kowser, number 15. Infielder Jordan Westberg, number 34. Outfielder Heston Kerstad, number 40. Shortstop slash second baseman Joey Ortiz, number 67. Second baseman slash outfielder Connor Norby, number 71. And third baseman Kobe Mayo, number 80. Now, dropping out of the top 100 was pitcher D.L. Hall, but still, the O's have two of the top 15 and four of the top 40 prospects in baseball. Uh, No game for the O's on Thursday. Next up for them, a three-game series against the Minnesota Twins at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Game one, Friday night at 7.05. Dean Kramer will be the Orioles' starting pitcher. Game two, Saturday afternoon at 4.05. Kyle Bradish will be the Orioles' starting pitcher. And game three, Sunday afternoon at 12.05. Cole Irvin will be the Orioles' starting pitcher. And that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Friday show, episode 603. We'll provide you with more on the commanders and get you ready for Wizards free agency as NBA free agency is beginning on Friday evening. Have a great rest of your Thursday and I'll talk to you voice willing <laughs> on Friday. No! Not possible! Not possible!